This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate. Morena, ko Fraser Greg, toko ingoa, no mai kiti korero, e ranga itereo irarangi on tangata o manawatu. We are joined by Tangi Utikere, mema o parimata o papayoya, <laughs> or pami, we might get to that. Uh, Atamari e Tangi. Atamari e Kiorana. Um, yes, uh, Friday uh, morning in the beautiful Palmerston North and Manawatu. It's turning out to look like quite a nice day, which it is. It is, and I'm, I'm dressed for it too. I've turned up to the studio in shorts, short sleeves. Um, I've got a Zoom day for today, so the um, <laughs> so the, the, jack- the jacket goes on, but the shorts stay on you as know well. It's true. Yes, uh, you do have to leave pretty much bang on nine o'clock. So uh, I meant to say beforehand, uh, when I say thank you, you can go, thank and I'll you. deal with the rest <laughs> of it. Um, but let's have a look at what's been going on in the past couple of weeks. Uh, very briefly, uh, COP twenty six has come to its conclusion. Of course, James Shaw made. Uh, a little bit, uh, ruffled some feathers in, in going over in person, although a lot of people seemed to understand the importance of, of him going. Uh, it was more about MIQ slots and things, really. Um, the general consensus, the, 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 well, there's two consensuses, if that's at all possible. One, this is the most um, forthright and, and forward-thinking and ambitious COP26 that there's been. And then we interview Rachel Keedwell from Horizons Regional Council this week, and she is rather disappointed at the lackluster outcomes. Um, is that just going to be bar- par for the course on anything at this scale? I think it's really interesting talking um, with my colleague Tiano Tuiono last week, who's previously been part of some of those big gatherings and talked um, through the, the logistics of how that all works and, and it is on the go 24-7 basically. I think that the reality is that when you get a, a global gathering like that, that you're going to have lots of points of difference. And while sure, people... Um, locally and, and domestically might want to do more, a lot of it is reliant on the international community. So being at the table, or the many tables as I understand it, um, as part of COP26 is important. Um, COP26 has, while, while the summit ha- may have ended, it's still ongoing. I, I saw something in my um, email inbox, um, sort of a couple of follow-up virtual events, um, given I'm on the Environment Select Committee. So yeah, I can understand that people might be disappointed. Um, some perhaps might say, well, it's going a bit too far. Um, The reality is that global climate issues are really significant and important, but some countries don't take it as seriously as others. Well, it's it's going to be really important for New Zealand because some of our realm countries, some of the Pacific Islands, are basically at sea level uh, at the moment. But, of course, with sea levels rising, we're going to be having climate refugees soon, aren't we? You're quite right. And um, just reflecting on the last couple of weeks during COP26, there was one nation who basically said that, you know, in a, in a matter of time, they will be fully submersed. So does that mean that they are still an island state? Um, there are those those realities that, you know, are closer to home for us um, because of our unique nature. 
um, and others perhaps it's it's further from their mind. Mm. Uh, let's move on. Let's uh, let's have a look briefly at the pandemic. I say briefly, it could take forever, but we'll try not to. Obviously, big news this week, COVID. Now in Palmerston North slash Ashurst, um, this is, well, inevitable really, isn't it? I mean, this is the whole point of trying to get the vaccinations up because it was going to come regardless. I mean, the vaccination um, progress is really important. And what we're saying is that, um, there are pockets of COVID popping up in the community. Um, the the only way that we're going to be able to have a strong defence around that, and we've talked about this previously consistently as well, is uh, to have high levels of vaccination. So yes, we did see um, some arise uh, locally here yesterday, or actually Wednesday evening as mm-hmm. I understand it. Um, and so really the message is around how you protect yourself and your whānau is to ensure that you're vaccinated. And so DHB, I'm aware, have, you know, lots of opportunities for testing, which mm-hmm. is another side of things, but also um, for vaccination options as well. Yeah, uh, speaking of the DHB, 1.5% of their staff not vaccinated. I mean, you'd, you'd expect better from the, me- from the medical profession. Uh, it seems to be that uh, we're getting to a point now, people are latching on to this argument that I'm not anti-vaccination, I'm anti-mandate. I don't want to be told to do it. I want my own free choice. <laughs> Do you respect that viewpoint? I, I, I respect the the view the ability for people to hold views that are different to me. Mm. But I ex- also accept that government um, and the parliament have a responsibility to protect sectors of our community. Um, and when we're looking at vulnerable sectors and okay, education then, and health... Yeah, but then who's right? Um, if, if government is, 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 is charged with protecting people and this mandate comes out, then mm. the people opposing the mandate are wrong, aren't they? Well, what I would say is that there are obviously choices that people need to make. And yes, it's clear that a consequence may be that they're not able to um, fulfil the duties that they currently would do. That's a matter for them. So on the one hand, you know, it's a, it's a choice factor. But by the same token, the parliament, and it's, it's fairly um, widely accepted around the parliament. So that while this is a, a government view, it's, it's, you know, supported by other parties in the parliament as well. Mm. Um, that actually it is appropriate to mandate uh, in those areas and that those that choose not to be vaccinated for whatever reason, um, that they will effectively, there'll be a consequence around that. Yeah, but the consequence isn't on them. And and although we have discussed previously that they'll be in essence second class citizens, the consequence is they're going to get sick. They're going to end up in the hospitals, clogging up the hospitals that now have less staff than they used to have in a sector that is notoriously understaffed. The health system's going to buckle and then somebody's granny is going to die from an infection because she couldn't have her ingrowing toenail removed in an elective surgery. That's the consequence, which is selfish. It's not personal choice. It's it, it, surely that something must be done here, Tangy. Well, there, there is no compulsory vaccination, right? There is no compulsory vaccination, so people will still be able to choose. And I would hope that people that work, for example, in the healthcare system, would see what it's like when the healthcare system does come under some pressure, and that you know the choices that they may make around not having vaccination. Well, obviously not. Two, or two to three percent nationally. You were looking at anywhere from sixteen hundred to two and a half thousand staff across yep. the country in uh, the the medical uh, sector are not getting vaccinated. Also, incidentally.
recently, Ministry of Education being very quiet on how many teachers have been stood down and what sort of ludicrous setups are being set up for teachers to teach remotely. Uh, you know, teachers in their spare room at home and all the kids are in the classroom. I mean, come on. Well, what I would say on that is, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of face-to-face contact when it comes to teaching. Um, I never did... Uh, have to teach via Zoom. I'd, I'd moved out of the classroom from then, um, so I would, I would find that a bit of a struggle. You know, if you were a teacher, because most people, I would think, get into that profession because you want to engage with rangatahi and young people uh, generally face to face. Um, so, look, I know that, for example, the DHB are working through options at the moment that people may still determine that they do want to have the vaccination. But if it comes to the mandated date and they're not, well, then basically that's it. Uh, it, Was the government prepared for this amount of resistance? I mean, there's always going to be a few people. It's Mm. widely accepted. But 3% of our medical uh, people employed in the medical sector saying, no, I won't be told what to do because this Facebook post or because this this issue. I mean, were you expecting that well, amount? Well, I mean, we do need, I think, focus on the 97% that mm. are vaccinated, which is really important. Mm. But I appreciate that there is a small percentage there that at this stage, have chosen not to be vaccinated. I mean, even trying to get the country over 90% is... Pr- I mean, I, I remember we were talking, you know, we, well, 90% is the, the threshold, but let's get mm. to 95, 97%. Now we're we're going to the traffic light system before we even get to 90 And there are some challenges in particular communities, you know. Um, yesterday, we've seen the Prime Minister up in Tairawhiti because there is obviously a challenge up there in terms of increasing um, the vaccination rates. Here in Palmerston also, the mid, mid-central Rohe is a little bit lower, but in Palmerston North, we're, we're well over 90%. Ah, um, but you break it down into demographic uh, or even geographical location yep, within the city. Ab- it's not... Absolutely, you know, and we've spoken before about where those pockets of need are. Uh, they're in our western suburbs and in Roslyn as well and parts of Awapuni. Um, and the hardworking teams are continuing to do some good work in that particular space. And we'll continue to do that as we move in to try and get as many people vaccinated the, as we can. There's a common... I mean, to take one demographic, for example, uh, Tangata Whenua, Māori... Yeah. Uh, there's a, a constant criticism of the government that you're not using the resources already there to engage with those communities, even down to just, you know, talking to iwi. Um, that, that, particularly in the rural areas as well, why is the government not using those resources? Why are we still going with the, sort of the daily 1pm announcements and just that encouragement and the social media advertising? Why aren't we getting drilling right down? I, I think that the, what we are seeing, um, and I can speak to the local context in a moment, but what we are seeing is um, a desire to do exactly that. You know, you have the Minister uh, of Health, Associate Minister with the Responsibility for Māori Health, engaging directly with iwi all around the motu. Here in Palmerston North, we have some very strong iwi providers and local providers who are working extremely hard. When I think about the oversight of Titihi, when I think about Whakapai Haora, when I think about Te Wakahuia, who I know have actually stepped up their particular clinics from um, one or two a week to basically running every single day now, who are going into homes, who are reaching out to Fano, who have really strong connections. You know, I spent some time down there um, as part of Super Saturday and since then talking with one particular woman who came in who was engaging with the, with them as a provider who had gone and door knocked, you know, with their support every single household 
in their street. Now, I would say probably that particular street in that part of town, knowing it very well, the street, um, would be well over 80% that would be Māori members mm-hmm. that they're alone. And, you know, she, I think, actually ended up with more over well, I think there were only about two houses left that she was still trying to encourage. Mm. So that, it's, it's about the face-to-face contact that's taking place. And yes, um, we need to be engaging with iwi. We need to be going where our Māori community is and are. And I think locally we are trying to do that and we're doing it very, very well. The thing is that, that this is not new news. Uh, uh, tangata whanua, inherent distrust of government, even as a feeling, even if recognising that things have changed, but just as a gut in- instinct, the government saying, I've got to do something. Nah, I'm not doing that. That is prevalent. We all know that exists. Surely the government should have been quicker to recognise that this would have been a potential area for concern and more effort should have been put in. I think it's fair to say that, you know, the, the whole pandemic is, um, well, it's apart from being dynamic, is always evolving. And yes, we saw a ramp up in terms of vaccination efforts around vaccination. Um, we've got to balance that, I think, with the the desire that the, the vaccine is new coming in, sure, but also that Māori engagement and engagement with our Māori communities is a person-to-person thing. And so often it's about conversations. So the discussions that I've been having with some of our providers, they're telling me that, you know, some people it's three, four visits to the actual site before they decide that, yes, I'm comfortable having the vaccine and the vaccination. Why is that? Because they want to talk about it. They Mm -hmm. want to stand a little bit more. They want to understand not just what's going to happen when they turn up, but what the the future um, implications in terms of, you know, the second shot and the boosters and all of these sorts of things, having conversations and seeing firsthand, um, and not just me, I know certainly on Super Saturday, the mayor, some other local um, leaders were there as well talking with people. Um, they feel encouraged to actually be having conversations with people that they have connections with. And here locally, that's working really well. If we're looking at our Māori stats, um, they, yes, consistently across the country, they are low, which is why there's huge effort to try and increase and improve that. I have to say, in a positive way, that our Pacifica stats um, are looking good. Mm-hmm. You know, like usually we see quite a, a similarity between Māori and Pacifica stats, which are much lower than the rest of the cohort. Uh, what we're seeing here locally is that our Pacifica stats are up um, in, the, in the 80s. So so still work to be done, but but promising at the same time. Uh, the government has launched the, the My Vaccine Pass. Uh, yeah. I think they did that on Wednesday. The website was chock-a-block on Wednesday. But I managed to get mine yesterday, Thursday. Oh, um, so I've got mine on my phone. It, it, it is a little uh, peculiar to do it if you don't. If you're a, a, a phone user that doesn't use every aspect of the phone's function, when you get told to put it in your digital wallet, this is a moment for a pause. Uh, but regardless... It's there. I understand the government are going to be uh, able to issue uh, physical copies if people want physical copies as well. Interestingly, though, the verifying app for businesses to use to to document whether someone has a vaccine or not, uh, not released yet. We're we're 10 days away from the cabinet's decision and uh, I, as a business owner, haven't had a chance to play with the actual verifying bit yet. Not great. Well, I think the the focus is on ensuring that people have um, accessed their their pass, their Mm -hmm. My Vaccine pass, um, and the application or the digital application that will be available for businesses and community groups and others um, will be coming. It will be a simple, as I understand, I haven't seen it, but as I understand it, it will be simple to use. It's a verifier app. Um, very similar to the, 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 the way in which you scan anything else, really. 
um, and those that have been to events will see how easy that is. Um, I also downloaded my my vaccine pass um, on Wednesday, yeah, mm-hmm. Wednesday. Um, I've got a couple of messages from people locally saying that they've found it a bit difficult because of the volume. Um, it's great that there is a, a, a large number of people that are wanting to download it, but you still have a little bit of time. I don't know about you, but I found it pretty easy to actually access the my vaccine pass. It, getting it to my phone was a little bit um, It's It's not different. so much that. It's that you've got to be prepared for it because when the My COVID Record uh, website launched, I logged on to that and I had to find my health insurance number, uh, health NHL identity number, number mm. uh, and link it all up with my Realme account, which is someone who works in the not-for-profit sector. I think I'm more aware of Realme than people that perhaps work in the private sector. So I was sort of set and ready to go when the My Vaccine Pass thing was rolled out. Others, I could see that being a bit of a minefield, just trying to prove who you are in order to get it in the first instance. Yeah. And, and I mean, you know, what we've announced this week um, and in the House, I asked the minister, um, Chris Hipkins, the questions around when it was, you know, what announcements had been made around the My Vaccine Pass and when it was going live and all of those sorts of things and um, ha- how it will be used. Um, what's really important is that there will be some members of our community who are not familiar with um, phones, you know, who who still use the manual approach to mm-hmm. signing in into premises, um, and that's fine. Uh, the majority of people are using smartphones to do that, but others are not. And so what's really important is that those who um, are not familiar with phones still have the opportunity to be able to access and, and receive their their copy. And so there is an 0800 number, there's support that's been put in place to um, be there to provide assistance to anyone who requires the assistance to be able to access their My Vaccine Pass. Still a lot of questions from uh, businesses that remain unanswered around how this is all going to work. My particular favourite that I've been trying to get an answer on for about a month now is NPR. We are going to be asking for vaccine passes in order to gain access to our premises, uh, but this is a multi-tenanted building. Uh, I'm not aware of what the other tenants are going to do and we have communal toilets. So whilst I uh, require uh, vaccine passes to come in here, anyone could go and use the toilet. There's a crossover there. The premises are somewhat compromised. What do I do, Tangy? Yeah, I think in terms of those communal areas, there no doubt will still be a requirement to follow social distancing and masks as you would in any other spaces out and about. Mm. But really, as I understand it, you know, your responsibility is for your immediate area and access to that. In common areas, just like my um, own elected office, we also have uh, communal um, toilet space. That's the only and a a corridor, that's the only communal area. Um, So if we were to apply whatever traffic light system and allow vaccinated people or not, um, then there would be implications for that communal space. Um, My expectation is that there will be a full release of information and guidance around this. Um, I don't know about the timing in terms of alongside the Authenticator app, it might be at the same time. Um, But it's very clear that we need to make sure that those who are responsible for uh, the access to their business premise, whatever we might want to call it, they understand what the requirements are and how they go about that. But clearly in communal areas, um, my suggestion would be that there is still a responsibility around some of that, um, uh, some of those measures yep. that we use out and, you know, as we're walking down the street.
Very good. We are here with Tangi Utikeri, a member of Parliament for Palmerston North, uh, or PAMI. I see Paul O'Brien in the Manawatu Standard yeah, uh, advocating for PAMI. Um, everyone's got their opinion on that one. Let's move on, though, um, Tangi, to legislation. A few things uh, going through uh, the House at the moment. Uh, the Labour government um, have been promising for a while to repeal three strikes. Yep. This got somewhat scuppered uh, last time round by New Zealand First, but uh, you're, you're, you have the majority. You can do it now. Um, Ian McKelvey, I put this to him last Friday. Uh, he he acknowledged that this was a long-held uh, election promise, so he gave you kudos for following through on it. However, he disagrees with um, how the government has interpreted the numbers because I heard, I think, uh, Grant Robertson was saying there is absolutely no evidence to suggest that three strikes has made our communities in any way safe um, but Ian says you're not uh, looking at the deterrent aspect of three strikes and that there is evidence there to suggest that it is a deterrent. What's the, und- what's I, the response to that? I understand that argument, but what I would say is that this is, yes, um, this is something that the government had campaigned on, so it's very clear that we're delivering on our manifesto commitment to mm-hmm. the community around that. Um, but this is a long-held um, piece of legislation that even the judiciary, the Chief Justice, have has suggested um, that it is is not fit for purpose um, and that it's not helpful because what it basically does is it places members of the judiciary in a bind that there is absolutely no leeway to consider the specific circumstances um, of of an offender at all. Um, and look, I've I've as you know, I've sat here on the on the bench locally and I've seen. Um, the three strikes warning stamps. There's a whole pile of stamps on the bench that judges and other judicial officers use, and all of the um, notations that go with it. And it, it's very clear to me, even sitting in the house uh, one evening this week when it was introduced, um, that it it's it's just a nonsense. I mean. Members of the judiciary need to be independent, but they also need to be able to sentence those that are convicted based on the circumstances and also reflecting on the the concerns and issues that the victims may have, um, but the circumstances of the offending Mm -hmm. and of the offender. Okay, I get that. So um, if we take both arguments that there's no evidence to suggest that this is making us safer in effect, but maybe acknowledging that, yes, it was a deterrent in some instances, how do we go about repealing three strikes but then putting something in place that still acts as a deterrent because it would appear that the current system is not deterring people from crime to the extent that perhaps it could? Um, no, I, I probably wouldn't necessarily agree with that final statement because what we have at the moment is we have um, a, a rote approach, whereas, you know, I was in the House said you must just have an abacus then because basically if an offender comes before the court for sentencing, then it's predetermined what the outcome is going to be. What we have if you remove the or repeal the three strikes legislation is you still have a suite of sentencing options that are available to the judge. Um, it's extremely rare for the maximum penalties to be impl- applied by the judge. They could be um, because that's reserved for the most serious of offending. The reality is that at the moment with the three strikes legislation, we have um, 
an offender who early on in their offending career uh, fronts before the court. There's a limited option there. It's, you know, you don't go straight to the highest level. It's a low-level form of sentencing. And then suddenly you don't utilise any of the sentencing options that are in the mid, mid-range. mid You go straight to the high end because of the three strikes. Mm-hmm. So by removing or repealing this legislation, you allow available to the judicial officer all of the full suite of the of the sentencing options, which currently have not been available to them because they have to basically, in my view, jump from a low end right through to imposing what are significant penalties. Did I mishear you? You say the start of their offending career. Is that not the problem that people choose this? And, 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 and whilst it is a, a large, blunt object, three strikes may cut that career short. Um, yes, although... The way that three strikes legislation works is that it depends on a specified offence rather than the nature of the offending. Mm. So while it might be, you know, um, I don't know, a specified offence around burglary, but actually it's a very um, minor form of burglary. I know that might sound a bit strange to some, but um, it means that you automatically don't consider the fact that it was – very minor, and if you explained it to someone, they might think, oh, that's not a big deal, even though it might be for a commercial premises, mm-hmm. and I'm not downgrading mm-hmm. criminal activity at all. Um, it means that you jump straight to a predetermined outcome yeah. um, rather than actually having available to an independent judicial officer, a judge who is independent from the government, um, to consider all of the facts and, and apply what is a, a sensible and fair Outcome. Um, when I talk about you know early on in an, in an offend, someone's in an offender's career, I I don't want that to be taken lightly. I mean you know someone who offends offends and that's not acceptable mm-hmm. um, nor proper. But what I am saying is that we are having situations where individuals basically jump from their first offence to a third offence um, and end up having to serve significant penalties. Four minutes to nine with Tanya Utikeri on the catch-up. Uh, if you want to listen to this or previous editions of the catch-up series, head to the website npr.nz forward slash show forward slash catch-up. From three strikes to three waters, uh, three waters, we've, 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 we've gone over this uh, numerous times, but now uh, neighbours to your electorate, Manawatu District Council, are leading the charge in uh, rallying together councils of a like mind who basically oppose the, again, the Mandate. Uh, it's the word du jour. Uh, Nanaya Mahuta. I mean, even Ian McKelvey has said it was always the plan to mandate this. It was just uh, you were hoping that the councils would come on board willingly, but they haven't. So now you're mandating three waters, and some of the councils are annoyed and are starting to rally themselves because LGNZ apparently not fit for purpose now because they agreed uh, to not oppose uh, the government's legislation uh, on behalf of the councils even though that's not what the council said. It's a bit of a mess. Well, what I would say is that, yes, the government have decided that um, the mandate in terms of, uh, you know, this won't be an option is the road that we're going to take. Um, what we have announced is an expert working group uh, largely around LGNZ who represent the sector. I mean, that's what I would say. They represent the sector. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a number of uh, councils who are members of LGNZ. It is, it is their body, their organisation. And sure, Manawatu District might have a view, but that you know that might be offset by a number of others that have a different view. Um, so there is this. No, for example, group. Palmerston North City Council. Yeah, who and are I, largely... I need to actually maybe just comment on that because I I did receive some feedback last week from uh, a third party through 
one of, one of your listeners um, who had you know the suggestion that I said that Palmerston City Council is fully supportive of of the three waters. Um, I, th- that is my view, but I will say that um, you know the the wastewater mm. approach uh, they've made that decision, and it might be schemed in that particular. Area there are still the other two waters around, you know, provision of drinking water and, and stormwater, and I, it probably might be fair to say that the council hasn't had a full conversation mm. around that, but they certainly haven't indicated that they are opposed to the three waters. So I'll just clarify that. Good to get some feedback from some of your listeners yeah, um, out there. Um, feel free to keep it coming. Um, so look, it, it, we we have set up this this working group, and um, it's a way in which you know government can work alongside iwi, can work alongside. Um, councils to ensure that as we move towards this, the, well, these new entities, um, that we understand the position of everyone and we can have some really good outcomes. Marvellous. Uh, Tangi Utakere, you have select committee in precisely 50 seconds, okay. so he's off. Bye, Thank Tangi. Um, we will be back uh, on Monday with another edition of the Catch-Up series. We're going to be speaking to Wendy Carr uh, from Fielding and District Promotion. Also on Tuesday on the Catch-Up at half past eight, uh, we're going back into the Massey slot again, hopefully speaking to one of the lecturers on podcasting, which I'm quite excited about, obviously related to what we do here at Manawatu People's Radio. That is it for the catch-up this morning. Do join us on Monday at half past eight for another edition. Uh, Take care of yourself over the weekend. Um, As I say, we'll be back on Monday. Uh, Bye for now. If you're a fan of NPR, listening to our podcasts and live stream has never been easier. Just search for accessmedia.nz on the App Store or Google Play and download the app with the Kiwi Fruit logo. Once you've got it, pick Manawatu People's Radio from the list of stations and go find your new favourite show.